Hello, Black Swamp Podcast listeners. Tim here again, and thanks for tuning into episode 31 with Elizabeth De La Mater in our series of BSP Educator and Artist interviews. If you've been listening regularly, thank you, and hopefully you've enjoyed dropping in on these conversations. Uh, if you're new to our series, uh, thanks also, and feel free to travel back in time through our episodes. Uh, we've had a lot of great conversations about practicing, improvising, being an entrepreneur, and other fun percussive topics. Uh, one quick note before getting into our next conversation. Uh, we're running a special snare drum sale through the end of March. Basically, we have a collection of snare drums that are available to ship quickly. So if you're shopping for a snare drum in a hurry or just looking for something special, uh, check out the quick ship snare drums we have on our website. Uh, you can visit our homepage or follow the link in the show notes. Plus, you can receive a 10% discount when purchasing through participating retailers. So get a super sweet orchestral snare drum fast and save money at the same time. Uh, what's not to love there? So Elizabeth De La Mater is a BSP educator who has taught, performed, and lectured around the world, most recently in Trinidad, right at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, I think it was like 2019, late 2019. Um, which we spend uh, some time talking about. Elizabeth also has her own podcast called Art Lives or Lives. Um, I, I've landed on Lives, so Art Lives. Um, she's also a steel band authority and is chair of the PAS Diversity Alliance, which I learn all more about during our conversation. Again, we'll have info and links in our show notes for a bunch of her activities. Otherwise, let's get chatting. Welcome, Elizabeth, to the Black Swan, so Black Swan Podcast, and thanks for taking the time to talk with me. And um, if you could, we, we sort of have a little agenda, I guess, um, but sometimes I like to just get a, uh, an idea of how our artists and educators got started in the, the music and percussion business. So, you, you know, However, how, however much detail you want to share or not is totally cool, but like kind of how you got started playing percussion, what some influences or inspirations were, or kind of what your, a little bit of your backstory, I guess. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> well, I loved, uh, I, I loved music. I don't remember when I, you know, when I didn't. So I, um, guess I was bugging my mother to let me play some instruments um, right away. And, uh, she let me start taking piano lessons early. And then I was just always fascinated by drums. Yeah. They were my, um, favorite looking instruments. I loved all the sounds and, um, they were my favorite ones to learn about. And I remember, um, loving to see and hear the timpani yeah. in all of those, you know, uh, cartoons and um fantasia and if we ever went to a concert um i would was fascinated by the drums they were just the most coolest but i i loved them so much i thought they were there was no way my parents would let me play them. <laughs> it, like, my... it would be too good to be true or something right. if you got to yeah. experience it yeah yeah and so i um I think I actually studied for the rhythm test at school or something. You know, I just, I, a teacher had said, Oh, you play the piano. Well, you know, if you do really well on the rhythm test, maybe um, you'll be assigned percussion. And I thought, 
that is that's just you know would be the bee's knees or whatever i thought right, that the, the heavens opened up and, and yeah right and all your dreams were about to come true well it turns out that my mother only said yes because she'd already paid for a cello and then a saxophone for my brother okay and uh a neighbor had told her that it had only been five dollars to pay for her son's drumsticks <laughs> so when right. i said that's hey, all you need is a pair of drumsticks uh, and a kitchen right. counter or whatever yeah exactly yeah my it. mom was like oh my gosh this kid already wanted a piano yeah sure you could play drums yeah and i was you know that was it so yeah by it's funny my one of my running jokes from the college years even is like, oh, I should have played the flute, you know, like, yep. like the, just the, the quantity of instruments and then, you know, full well schlepping gear and tearing down and setting up. And so the other day at the dinner table, I, we were, my oldest plays uh, violin, like this is our third year. And our youngest nice. was like, it's just like, ah, if I, if I ever picked up an instrument, I might like to play the flute. And I was like, yes, <laughs> run with that. So we roll, keep going. I like, the, I like the way you're thinking. I like the direction you're going, but You can yeah. put it in a backpack. It's, yeah, totally. It's crazy to me. Yeah. And we were like, even though, you know, the piccolo, once you learn to play the flute, then you can get an even smaller instrument and you can play the piccolo. Uh, yeah, the other, the, another running joke in my family is we kind of have kind of longer arms. And when I was like in fifth grade, the band director, when we were doing the tests, you know, like yeah. he wanted me to play trombone because I had long arms. Oh. <laughs> I was like, uh, uh, trom- mm. uh, no, thanks. I'll, I'd like to play the drums. Thank you. So, yeah. Totally. Um, so you were just like interested in, in music at a young age and knew you wanted to play drums and percussion and then kind of hit it. Uh, get it um nice it. <laughs> thanks uh and kind of got into it in middle uh you know grade school middle school type stuff and went from there yeah my uh i because i did know piano um i i did know all of already the notes on the bells right so i was um ahead of my uh buddies in school so that the band director um, said, hey, maybe you want to take lessons with this local teacher. And the local teacher turned out to be really spectacular. So she's, um, her name is Vicki Jenks, and she is um, uh, somebody who had a huge studio in Madison, also taught at the Wisconsin Youth Symphony Orchestra. Um, so from sixth grade on, I saw somebody who had a career in music in percussion. Mm-hmm. And I also saw a woman who was doing it right. and was taken seriously. Um, so uh, also after that awesome sixth grade band director, I had band directors who didn't think women should be playing. <laughs> but luckily yeah. I had a private teacher who did. And yeah. so um, once I saw that that it could be done and that that she had a, a lot of neat experiences and got to travel everywhere, um, then I was pretty hooked and um, uh, I played with the Youth Symphony for many years and and because um, I, I was growing up in Madison, Wisconsin and right. the Madison Scouts wouldn't let me in. Oh, yeah. So I had to, uh, yeah. Stuck <laughs> those with are the rules, I guess. Yeah, they were crappy rules. So I'm glad <laughs> they've changed those. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, but uh, I had some really neat experiences and 
I probably decided in early high school that I was going to stick with it. Yeah. Um, and then where did you go? I mean, you obviously ended up studying music. Where'd you go from there? Right. Went to Northern Illinois University. Okay. And then I, uh, I studied with Robert Chappell and Rich Holly for percussion. And Al O'Connor and Cliff Alexis were at the steel band. And I learned a lot from them. Right. Um, along with some um, other world percussion via the ethnomusicologist um, who is Huang Ho Hong. And then I went to Florida State. And at the time, that was Gary Wordesheim, who was a okay. Saul Goodman student. Right. Um, and then eventually Arizona State with Mark Sunkett and J.B. Smith. Yeah. And that was, I mean, maybe we'll talk a little bit about it later, but I know, I mean, you have a large interest in steel pan. And so knowing now that makes sense, <laughs> like right. studying with Cliff Alexis and, and, and going to school there. So that's something I think that we can dig into a little bit. Um, and then you end up back in Wisconsin, obviously, yeah. like how does how does that like kind of moving all over the country, you know, from one corner of the country to the next, like, and then coming back? How did that transpire? That was a crazy fluke. Um, I teach at uh, the International Music Camp. I have been for uh, fifteen years, and I um, created a world percussion session up there, so you can go okay. and study with Jamie Ryan and myself um, and you get to work at least in four culture areas during the week and uh, then Allison Shaw at uh, UW Oshkosh said hey will you come do that here um, at the university and long story short I ended up coming here and working at Oshkosh for a while okay. and then uh, UW Green Bay opened up a job that was basically tailored to my husband, Bill Salick. Right. <laughs> and he applied and got that job. So that's why we're still here. <laughs> um, so that we can be draped in green and gold everywhere. <laughs> uh, Bill works in the home of the Packers and they don't let you forget it. <laughs> so he's a Packers fan, I take. Um, was, was he before? The official answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, he has to be, I guess. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I mean, that question was on my list too. And we, uh, like, of Bill, like, how did you guys meet? Because I think that's pretty, I don't know, maybe it's more common than I realize, but you're one of kind of few couples that I know that are both percussionists and teaching and, and teaching in the same state. Um, right. and, we, and we've kind of talked about it before off, uh, yeah. off, off mic. Um, yeah. But yeah, can you kind of share how you guys met and then go yes. ahead, feel free to dish some dirt on bill you know whatever <laughs> if, he's, if he's within your shot or not i don't know but um like, yeah talk to talk about bill okay so my husband was uh, the first person i met when i went to audition at florida no sorry arizona state university for my doctorate okay um and he was a nice guy and that's about all i thought um <laughs> he was very busy so he was uh, running around but he was very nice and um introduced me uh, to the department and I met a couple other grad students and that was that. And then the next year I ended up sharing an office with him. Okay. And we had a very strict a dividing line on the floor because um, Bill has a, 
very unique system of organization. That's all <laughs> that sounds, I'll say. That sounds very politically correct, actually. <laughs> yes, he would he would own up to that. Yeah. Um, and uh, people would come just to look at the office, actually. <laughs> um, so yeah, the whole year we got to know each other, and I thought the whole year, oh my gosh, there's no way I could date this guy. Yeah. And the whole year he thought, ugh, there's no way I could date her. And I, I'm not quite sure what happened. Something happened in April or May, and uh, we started dating. And then he went to uh, Kent State. He got a job there, and I kept going with school. Um, if he had stayed, we probably would have been sick of each other and yeah. never would have sucked together. <laughs> The, yeah, the time apart uh, brought you closer together. Maybe right, exactly. Is that how, is that how it works? I don't know. I think. Well, I think that I, I don't know about other folks, but I think that I am probably very hard to live with during graduate school. Yeah, sure. So you know, it worked really well for me to work hard and then uh, only see him on vacation. <laughs> right. Yeah. So. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's cool. I've always kind of found it interesting that that you two found each other and then your kind of career paths just took you to the same location or it's kind of worked out yeah, for you it's luck it, it we never thought it would work and we're still trying to figure it out we um i mean i i unfortunately we both want kind of the same job but we do different things right so we had to um talk about well what could that look like and, and what kind of place could we live and right we know that it's a it's sort of a um what the holy grail of you know a lot of couples don't get to do this so we've been right. apart a few times i mean we've probably we've been together since 2008 but we've spent at least four or five years apart oh interesting yeah how's yeah. that how'd that work um, out like where and how well let's see he was at in Kent and I was in Iowa for three years and okay. then I was in Wisconsin for a year and he was in Ohio. Yeah. And then uh, the last time we were separated, I was in Trinidad for a semester yeah. and he was in Wisconsin. Yeah. And you were married through this whole time too? We were married the last time. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Cause I think that's part of, I mean, like this career and being in education especially higher education, like, right it's you have to be willing to go where the job is or or right. be sort of flexible like that so yeah um uh, so you paid your dues i guess is what i'm hearing <laughs> so maybe it didn't work out immediately but it's worked out now so you put you put your time in yeah i mean that's the thing like it's kind of like now can we be together but <laughs> right. um yeah it's you know there are times when things have come up and it's it's kind of like oh yeah you've got to do that and so when i had an opportunity to teach uh in trinidad for a semester um janine remy teaches at the university of west indies down there and she needed somebody to teach for her while she went on sabbatical it's a very specific thing at a very specific place and um i've been there already and i i knew i could step in and do it um at least adequately right and uh so we could i could imagine how i could do it and um it's very difficult for her to take a sabbatical for that reason so it was like oh of course you know um 
so you know maybe if if more of those opportunities come up we'll still separate here and there right. but um so i guess and the only other thought about you and bill like <laughs> uh like my wife is not in music but she's in the arts she's a graphic designer and that's right and works um you know for a corporation based in west michigan here yeah but definitely like the creative side and so we are able to kind of share thoughts and ideas because I'm in basically marketing and sales for, for black swap percussion. Yeah. And, and for several years, you know, she was kind of designing, you know, ads or, or web stuff for us and things like that and, or catalogs. And, and I kind of gradually, you know, start doing a little bit more of that on my end and she's working, um, you know, full-time anyways. So um, we're able to kind of bounce ideas off each other and share marketing ideas and share kind of things like that. Like, I think like you and Bill can probably do, maybe it gets tired. Maybe you get home and you're like, I don't want to talk about this stuff anymore, but you're sort of in a position where you can maybe bounce some of these ideas off each other. Like I'm sure you could with any um, partner in any type of field, but I don't know, maybe there's a little bit more connection to it. Yeah, I, I think it's probably what you've discovered. I, I think it's wonderful. And I know there are other people who feel there's no way they could, other musicians who feel there's no way they could be with another creative. <laughs> right. And I, I totally get that, um, uh, especially if they have children. We don't have children. And so we can geek out, uh, you know, for hours watching the same videos yeah. or not. Um, but I mean, for example, if I do a recording of something, he's uh, half of his job is um, the audio production design and degree up at Green Bay. And sure. um, uh, the system that I couldn't make work for our podcast is, <laughs> is all set up here in this room. Right. Um, but he helps with my podcast. He um, helped me originally set that up. And then every time I finish an episode, he gives it the uh, bill approval he listens to <laughs> right. my levels you know and yeah. uh all of that is is very nice because then i don't have to explain um why i'm working on a saturday or a sunday um i used to be married to a trumpet player who didn't understand even why i had to leave so early for a gig oh yeah and it, and uh the the kind of sound to even the the budget part of it too was difficult, but um, it works well for us. I think that sometimes we do have to say, I think we need to take a break. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, yeah. I mean, I think that's true of any relationship. Like, right. like even, yeah. I mean, we have a couple, we tried to create what we call the COVID room, like at the beginning yeah. of the pandemic, like where people could like, go when they're tired of being with the rest of the family you know or I you know yesterday at one point you know my girls weren't being they were just having fun and yeah with each other which I you know which is great because it's not always like that but I was like can you girls have fun somewhere else like <laughs> can you guys I just need to like a little bit of space and quiet right now so right yeah I think that's true for for any relationship but um yeah so enough about Bill. Um, <laughs> so, um, I guess, you know, sort of you've, I mean, I want to talk about your podcast too, 
but before we get there, I mean, there's like a whole, I got a whole list here. So before we get there, um, you know, obviously I mentioned COVID and that's kind of a topic of conversation the last several months, like how um, our artists and educators have been handling that time. Yeah. And you can, you can cut me off, but I would say you're the first person that I've talked to that I know has experienced COVID like firsthand, like yeah. had, had COVID. And from what I can tell, and very early on and when you yes. were in, when you were in Trinidad. So that right. was over a year ago and before it was actually in the U.S. So right. uh, do you mind kind sure. of talking about that experience at all or? Sure. And okay. then you can edit out however. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, yeah. I mean, it's uh, for me, it was terrifying. And I, um, it, I, it really just started as a cold. And then in Trinidad, um, the folks, I, it was the end of a semester, right, at a university. So um, we knew that the flu was going around and a cold was going around and everybody was just kind of calling the crud, the cold. <laughs> right. You know how when you're trying to power through something, you tend to... Um, you tend to kind of minimize whatever it is. And so I know one of my colleagues had had the flu like mm -hmm. the last week of classes and you just say, Oh, it's, you know, I think it's coming around to me. And, um, but then a friend said, be careful. One of my friend's daughters just died from this last week. Wow. And, and this, this was before COVID was a word. Right. But so here's the deal. Trinidad is in the very southernmost part of the Caribbean. It's right off the coast of Venezuela. It's um, a huge uh, shipping port. Sure. Um, there are projects that are being built by other governments, including China. And it's got one of the top 10 beaches in the world. Oh. It's got a... Um, uh, nature preserves and animals that only exist there and um, people come from all over and so then it's December which is summer for some parts of the world yeah. and so I had been there working really hard and then at Thanksgiving break Bill my husband came down to visit me so we went to one of the top 10 beaches in the world oh, yeah. and we then we went to this uh, bird sanctuary where you get in a boat for three, four hours, a little boat that's pushed with a pole. Yeah. And um, we were in a boat with a bunch of people from different parts of the world for three, four hours, which also then means Bill could have been exposed and gotten it and right. never known. Sure. Um, so there are a lot of unknowns, but what I do know is that about six days later i thought i was getting a bad cold and um and the swine flu was going around and so was a, another one of the um, mosquito viruses and so it was just kind of okay you got to give your final exams and you're gonna have to push through and um you can do this and then um every couple days it just kept getting worse and then on day five, I thought I was getting better. And then um, all of a sudden I had this feeling that, oh, 
and I, I'm not I'm not healthy I'm not yeah. well and um, I was supposed to meet I was finally had some free time and I was supposed to go watch the National Steel Band uh, Orchestra perform and, and it's a good thing for them that I got stuck in traffic and I missed their rehearsal yeah um, so I didn't go to that and then I was driving back home and that's when I started to really feel icky and so i got home and within a couple hours i was having a hard time breathing wow um and then i went to the faculty or the the university health center and that's when they isolated me and the doctor there said you are very sick we don't know what's going on um i ended up at a hospital and they didn't know what it was and they put me on a nebulizer and um, this is the thing that might have saved me. I have a migraine problem, and the hospital there didn't have the right drugs for my migraines. Oh. And they, the nebulizer dried me out and gave me a migraine. So I talked to the doc, and I said, I, you know, my head was splitting open, and I said, I, I can't, uh, I can't stay here. Um, I'm having a hard time breathing, but I also yeah. can't, can't do this. And he said, yeah, I don't have, I actually don't even know the drugs you're talking about. I don't have any of those here. Yeah. Um, some of the hospitals, the hospital where I was, was very small. Um, so I left and I made it back to my house and um, I made it through the night. And then for the next three or four days are kind of a blur. It was, um, very sick, but after that, I couldn't really walk uh, oh, yeah. farther than my my refrigerator. I was luckily in a small studio. Oh, yeah. I um, slept sitting up and was delirious and emotional, and um, it was it was really tough. And I I thought I was going to die. So yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. Sorry, I mean emotional is probably uh like doesn't do the 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 feelings justice because i can't imagine being uh in another country and right. especially and in that situation and being away from your husband and not, you know you're not in the us you're not in your own home uh, right you're not in a hospital or location that you're familiar with and the doctors don't know exactly what you're talking about as far as other meds and other right. things like i mean i think it would be horrible enough to like be in that situation in the u.s sort of in your own space but to be that far removed i think would be really scary so well, congratulations for, yeah. <laughs> for getting through it and being here obviously yeah i mean well that's the thing that was one thing that told me that what I was going through was weird was because at first it wasn't even that I was away from home or, or any of the logical things. It was that I was extremely emotional. I was um, like the illness. I, I woke up sobbing. Mm. So this is something that some other folks have experienced. One of the days I cried literally for two hours. Wow. Yeah. I called my mom and I said, I'm, I'm crying. We did a video chat and I, she just watched me sob. And I said, I can't stop crying. And then uh, another day I was really angry, which is, you know, now they say it's a, it's because it was a 
a virus that's attacking all of your systems. Right. And so that's just how it reacted with me. And then I got to the <laughs> point where I was actually thinking through, wait, I'm going through all of this alone. And I knew that I was contagious with something. And so I shut myself off. My landlord kept leaving me tea and some food. Oh, she was so uh, yeah, sweet. sweet. Yeah. But she has a tiny little five-year-old, a tiny little child. And I said, you, you cannot come in. So she would leave it on the patio. And um, I didn't see anybody for about 10 days. And mm. um, that, so then by the end, then I was emotional for the reasons you're talking about. Then right, it was right. just, yeah, I mean. So when, when was this in relation to when you would have normally been coming home? Like, <laughs> Like, it was. Uh, it started two weeks, uh, through two weeks before I came home. So that was the other thing. Then I had to figure out um, if I was still going to be contagious. Mm -hmm. uh, if I was going to get on a plane, and my mother is a, a nurse practitioner, and so oh, she okay. got on with. She got together with a bunch of her doctors and kind of okay if it's if it's swine flu it's this if it's SARS this so what is so then everyone that she talked to determined um that if it was 14 days or 15 days that I wouldn't be irresponsible the other right. thing is that the only way I could get tested for anything um that the hospital hadn't tested me for was if I could go 45 minutes um downtown in into the capital city hmm. and I couldn't drive. I couldn't right. even walk to my car. So um, I thought then, so imagine if I could, if I could get there, then I have to wait a few days and um, then my visa is going to run out. Hmm. So then I would be there illegally. <laughs> so Hopefully they and, would make a, an exception or two in this case. Right. And, I, I I did ask a couple of friends to sort of check it out, and somebody said, "Well, you could you could also go to the embassy and see if they would give you an extension." And I was like, "I so I'm going to go contagious with whatever this is, mm -hmm. and ask for you know they'll kick me out before I get in the door." Yeah, right. So I just really had to um, pack up my stuff while I was sick, and um, luckily the uh, I was able to get my act together to drive to the airport and get on a plane and sleep. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're home Thank you. <laughs> over a year, over a year ago, I'm it's sure. Crazy. Yeah. And what, and, and then, yeah, it's also crazy. Then you, you get home and it's like, like, I don't know, shut down. <laughs> it's like, yeah. okay, now you, now you have an idea of what may, probably what was going on at that time. And now the entire world the country and the entire world is dealing with it. Um, yeah. Uh, so which kind of what I've been asking people sometimes is like how then the pandemic or like the shutdown has kind of affected their, their lives, like specifically trying to get into creativity or like, like what maybe you've had to adapt to or, or transition to. And, and maybe I'll put some words in your mouth right now, only because you just released a, a snare drum solo yeah. on, on YouTube just this morning. Um, yeah. And it's called translation for snare yes. drum, I guess. Translations. Translations. And from what I could tell is 
maybe not a response to the pandemic or COVID, but things that were sort of going through your head as far as um, uh, musical ideas or musical yeah. references. So I don't know if you can kind of touch on both of those things, the solo, sure, but then, sure, then sure. also how that kind of developed during the shutdown and pandemic and what else might've been going on. Yeah, I mean, I had I had taught in the fall, so then in the spring I had lined up some teaching, but then also some really cool things that I normally wouldn't get to do. So I had a couple um, residencies lined up, and I, I mean, it was so remarkable. Just like so many people experienced, you know, all, I was practicing uh, to go play a concerto somewhere, and all of yeah. a sudden, boom gone done <laughs> right and you know wait a minute um and uh so all of that is was just done and over and then summer camps are canceled and so this was the first summer that my husband and i spent at home yeah. the whole time this is the first summer since 1996 that i didn't teach summer camp so uh, some things were huge changes in my life but um it also was really time i don't compose that much i haven't composed that much in a few years and um yeah when i was delirious in my um little room in trinidad i had all of these um all these different rhythms in my head from uh different um musics that i've played right. and I they kept running together and then I kept thinking oh you know what that one's pretty cool going into that one and so at one point I pulled a piece of paper from something else and wrote down a whole bunch of uh different licks that I thought went well together yeah so then one sorry this is in Trinidad yeah oh wow I was thinking it was more like kind of after the fact and you were home well, and, and right you know, but it, it's all no no it stemmed from like literally you're you're quarantining yourself and can't can barely walk to the refrigerator but but right. you, you pick up a pencil and start writing down some uh, rhythms and things that are going through your your head sort of process yeah. it I mean it's just you know it's the kind of thing where you're on a loop <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> just and otherwise trying to breathe and trying to right. so i yeah i decided oh, i'm going to write them down and and then it would be cool to have another piece that utilizes the snare drum um in a uh non-traditional way and mm -hmm. uh we could do it all on a snare drum and um uh but you know then i kind of forgot about it and um so then when the pandemic happened, I thought, oh, maybe I have the time to do this, actually. And that's, I think that for some creative endeavors, uh, I don't need much time. And, but for others, I really need a lot of time. Sure. And 
for composing, I need a lot of extra time to let it sort of marinate and then to try things out and then let that marinate and then to go back because it's, um, it's so extra judgy. I'm such, a, you know, like I, so I have, I'll write it down and then I really have to literally wait a few days and yeah. then go back and play through it again. Sure. So um, that was something that benefited. Yeah, no, I, I can somewhat relate. I'm, um, I'm a marinator also, I yeah. guess, uh-huh. uh, I guess I call it, I digest things. So oh, nice. like even I, when we will have conversations at work, and I, I don't always, this is a blessing and a curse. I think I don't always have a response right away. It's like, sure. I have to, I got to think about this or I got to think through it. And sometimes I'll actually say that to Jamel who I work with. Yeah. Um, I'll be like, okay, I got to think about this for a bit. And he goes, yeah, yeah. You think about that Tim. And he <laughs> kind of walks away like, I, yeah, I'm not just putting it off. Like oh, yeah. I, I need to digest it and kind of come up or even marketing stuff like kind of you know, we're building parts of the website or doing more virtual stuff now. And I, it is like a process, like I got to kind of start it and then kind of get a bunch of stuff down and then kind of sit with it and think about it and look at it. And even today, like I was going to send out like an e-blast to our retail partners that had a bunch of information. And I was like, you know, I'm not quite ready to do, I'm not ready yet. I need another, I need another day or two to sit with some of this and figure a couple of things out. But, um, sorry, there's another thought, like, like, do you find getting started the hardest part? Like, do you find joy in getting started or do you, or is that kind of a challenge or frustrating for you? For me, it depends on the project. Yeah. So some things definitely it's hard, hardest to get started. Yeah. And, um, for others, I love the getting started part. And then, then the hardest, it, the tough part comes after the, you know, my initial ideas are, are, are um, gone or say it's a collaboration. So then I'll reach out and say, Hey, let's do this. And then, then, Oh no. Uh, well, I just had the idea. I don't, I don't know what we should do now. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, if you got the idea, you're going to be yeah, able right. to do it. That's what I tell sometimes my daughters are like, you know, guys at work, like, Hey, if you're going to have the idea, you got to be ready to, to you just volunteer you just volunteered yourself. So Man. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, with the compositions, the pieces, uh, I've written two solos this year and that with those, it's the most fun is the beginning part and, um, getting started is not hard. Um, it's the, it, yeah, it's definitely the middle when oh, okay. I have to make it more of a process and I have to be more thoughtful about, uh, and intentional and, and say, okay, well, maybe I have to, if I'm stuck, maybe I have to think about the form and let's go back to the nuts and bolts and, you know, yeah. fall back on technique for a while and see what happens. Yeah. So the, the translations, mm-hmm. I know that kind of, I guess, where did that fall then? Like, was that a joy to start working on or? Yes. Or, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, I had all of that stuff that I wrote down um, when I was sick. And so then when I picked it back up again, I thought, okay, I'm just going to keep, I'm going to keep that same idea. I'm going to keep all of these ideas here. I'm going to see if I have some more of my favorite rhythms and licks. 
and I'm not gonna order them yet. I'm not gonna put them in order. Um, I'm gonna try some different combinations and then I'll see um, if I wanna you know, choose a form or, and then eventually I'll see if I wanna order them. Okay, now how can I make it seamless? Mm -hmm. Okay, now this, I need to stretch some things out. Now I need some uh, material that will uh, go in between. Now I need something original that will link everything. And, yeah. Um, but yeah, the, I uh, starting that and then starting it over again was really fun. Yeah. Um, sorry, I had a question about the the solo. I totally just I totally just flaked. That's why I like you so much. Uh, yeah, I gotta make I gotta make a note that I flaked there because I'm gonna edit this out <laughs> <laughs> in post. Today's episode is brought to you by Wrist Grips. What are wrist grips? They're compression wraps for musicians. They are a one-size-fits-all, 100% cotton, virtually indestructible, vegan, and USA-made compression wrap to give you relief from stress injuries, numbing, or wrist pain. The folks at Wrist Grips were kind enough to send Tim and myself a pair of wrist grips to try out for a week. During that time, I wore wrist grips while I was practicing drums and guitar, I wore them while I was recording and performing, and while I was working out. If you find yourself having wrist pain while practicing or playing, you could likely find a lot of benefits from wrist grips as you work to correct your technique and form. The cool part about wrist grips is that they offer a 90-day money-back guarantee if you're not fully satisfied. So hit the link in the description and consider checking out wrist grips for yourself. Wrist grips. Compression wraps for musicians. Today's episode is brought to you by Primephonic the streaming service designed for classical music. Primephonic is here to save classical music for the streaming era. The app features high-res audio, radio on demand, curated playlists, and podcasts with famous artists. Times are tough these days, but Primephonic pays classical musicians in a fair way, paying per second and not per track. This is a huge deal compared to the other services that only pay artists per song. The app features a massive catalog featuring some of our favorites here at the shop, like John Cage, Steve Reich, Evelyn Glennie, and Ivan Trevino. For a limited time, Black Swamp podcast listeners are getting two months free of Prime Phonic with the exclusive promo code BLACKSWAMP. Visit the link in the show notes, enter the promo code, and you're good to go. Again, that promo code is BLACKSWAMP, all caps and all one word. Prime Phonic, the streaming service designed for classical music. Sorry, you were talking about some of the pieces and rhythms. Like, yeah, you can you talk about? I have a couple notes here: um, Gahu, Sabar, and Jembe rhythms. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you talk about kind of? I don't know, not too specifically what those are, but like sure. Why? Why those? Wh okay, so the. Um... Sabar, uh, the Sabar rhythms are um, uh, rhythms that are played on Sabar drums in Senegal. And um, the, if you play um, those drums, then you learn kind of two sets of things. You learn um, rhythms that you'd repeat over and over you learn ostinatos that mm. you then play in an ensemble for a rhythm that then is danced to but you also learn 
uh, what's called a Bach. It's like a melody. So drum ensembles will play um, sounds like songs. They're playing poems and um, they're very cool. <laughs> and so when you see a, a concert or if you go to a, even a party, before the dancing starts, the drum ensemble will do um, a cool lick or even in pop songs today, you'll the there will be a little break and you'll hear some kind of cool drum lick so it's kind of like a fill but mm -hmm. instead it's played on these savard drums and so if you get to do it long enough then you'll um get to have some favorite savar box or savar licks sure uh so once you do it then you they stick in your head for a long time yeah yeah um the gahu is from Awe drumming in Ghana. And um, some of that can stick in your head because you learn that by rote. You learn all of this by rote. So sure. um, I learned that the stuff I used in this piece, I learned it in 2016 when I went to Ghana and studied with Bernard Woma and uh, the members of Sakamu um, dance troupe. So Eddie Green taught me a lot of those rhythms also. and. Um, so I used a couple rhythms that the ensemble drums play um, behind the dance, and I used a couple of the lead drum rhythms um, that are my favorites. And the lead drum sometimes plays with a stick and a hand, just like Savar. So that's at least two sounds. Um, both of those uh, drums you play on the side, which would be another sound. Um, both of those drums often you play with a muted uh, head and then a flat stick. So all of these drums, you need different sounds. And so I was thinking, oh, you know, there's so, so many similarities. Um, it'd be cool to figure out how that could work on a snare drum. Mm -hmm. And on Gahu, there are a lot of uh, sections. And so if you've ever learned how to play that dance, um, you end up kind of picking your favorites. So like Bill and I are like, oh, I like this one. And Bill's like, no, 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 that one's my favorite. <laughs> and um, he's wrong, by the way. Yeah, okay. Now the, now the dirt's coming out. <laughs> Finally. It took 40 minutes, but we got there. <laughs> and then the, the djembe is kind of the same thing, except for the djembe rhythms that I stole. One of the djembe rhythms that I stole I really uh, ended up just that one's not literal. That one I didn't. I morphed out and um, um, kind of spun around and combined with a um, with a sabar rhythm. And that is an accompaniment rhythm that you play during a dance. Another uh, thing I it just took literally for one measure, which is the djembe call that starts the whole. Uh, a lot of the dances that are in duple, a lot of rhythms that are in duple, a djembe will start, um, one, the lead djembe will start the whole ensemble. And I took that rhythm. So a lot of djembe players might recognize that rhythm. And then um, the, a lot of djembe ensembles in Guinea or near that, uh, the more modern Malinka styles will, um, or traditions will use three bass drums and so there are two rhythms that the bass drums play that 
also figure into it. Sure. Um, so, uh, and all of the djembe stuff that I took is from um, a rhythm called kasa, which originally helped with the harvest, but it's, it's in, it's a duple rhythm and it's very funky. So, yeah. Um, I mean, is this kind of just the first of, of a couple or a few, like, it seems like there's a lot of, a lot of content you could kind of draw from there. Like, yeah, I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to use, uh, too much of anybody's, um, specific uh material and some of the savar stuff is actually um written or or the property of certain oh interesting groups. yeah and um uh i i mean the the answer is yes i just <laughs> have to make sure that i that i don't um steal you know yeah. Well, and then and, I do it respectfully. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Respectfully or kind of honor the source, you know? Right. Um, right. Which is very important. And I appreciate that. Um, yeah. It just seems like obvious, an obvious interest and then a lot of content and then, you know, kind of direction you could go. Um, so stepping back a little bit, there's a, a term used, rote learning. Right. Uh, in, in reference to... Um, you know, African drumming, um, or like kind of global music, but then also, you know, we talked to just briefly earlier about pan, like steel yeah. drum stuff, like, which is obviously, um, how pieces like entire pieces are learned in, in Trinidad by, by rote. Um, like, I mean, I'm just kind of drawing a line there between those two right? interests, but do yeah. you think, is there more there? Like, do you, does that kind of concept carry over to any other kind of as, aspects of your playing or teaching or, or learning in any sense? Um, yeah, when I, absolutely. When I was in my undergrad, um, I was, would hear from the teachers, uh, the culture bearers like Cliff Alexis um, about how we were, you know, you, you folks are all just, so dependent on music and on the yeah. page and um uh you won't really know what it's like until you can do it by ear and mm -hmm. or you won't really know the true experience and um we and we have i have so many experiences that um where i had to get off the page we went to uh i went to trinidad with the northern illinois university steel band as an alum um, when they played in the 2000 World Steel Band Festival. Mm. And some folks there were saying, this band is cheating, they're using music. Oh, yeah. But then they heard us play our calypso and they heard that we didn't groove. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, we don't care anymore. Go ahead, keep reading music. Exactly. <laughs> Here's some more music. Right. So they were they were focusing on fixing notes or adding notes the last week before the finals. Mm -hmm. And we were focusing on dropping our music um, and just playing, playing, playing for hours and grooving and learning the groove, mm -hmm. um, getting off of the page. And uh, just like they had said, it wasn't until I went to Trinidad and learned a tune by ear. And the more music I've learned by ear, the more I've learned about, myself and depending on the music it is 
different musics are taught different ways. It's not all taught the same, mm -hmm. um, but definitely without notation. Um, so I, I absolutely believe that, that everyone benefits uh, learning music without notation. Mm -hmm. A combination is best. And in Trinidad, you'll see that now some um, arrangers for some competitions will write down their music and they'll give it to people who want it. Um, otherwise, they'll teach it by rote or they'll um, have a teacher to teach it by rote and then um, they'll offer it, you know, and, uh, they'll have different solutions for different people. Um, and it's not like you don't speak about anything. You still have to come up with names for things. And mm. um, in Trinidad for uh, pitches, you, you still use A, B, C, sure. know, C sharp, D sharp. Um, but yeah, the, the students that I've taught, the more music by ear that they learn, ensemble directors every time always come back and say, oh, wow, there's a difference, you know. Mm. Uh, and these students listen more. They are better ensemble players. Oh, and they watch more and they understand um, the music better. Sure. And uh, I believe that every time I've learned a new kind of music or learned in a different way, I've it's helped me in the other kinds of music. So it's just like instruments, how instruments work for percussionists. If you play sure. drum set, you're a better marimba player. Yeah. Oh. Well, I guess I need to play more drum set because <laughs> I was a horrible marimba player. No. Well, I, I just think of like when I first was thinking about rote and, and writing stuff down yeah, and learning it that way. Like I have been, I mean, most of what I play now is drum set. And before that I was like, Bill and I are both University of Akron graduates, alum. Right. So he and I both played a lot of, of pan um, right. And so, you know, that carried over into my professional career, um, like just doing a lot of steel pan gigs around West Michigan and stuff like, right. um, which I don't do, well, because of the pandemic, but even before that, I'd kind of backed away from it. So I was playing a lot more drum set. And in the new year, I was like, oh, I'm going to learn some linear fills now, you know, like I'm going nice. to be, I'm going to be uh, the next Dave Weckl, not, um, but so I was like, okay, but I got to write this stuff down because I was watching YouTube videos and, and people right. were just kind of playing it. And a lot of people would have notation, but other times it's like, you, you know, it's this sticking and then it's this pattern. And I was like, I got to write this stuff down. I'm like, yep. well, now I'm thinking maybe I shouldn't, maybe I should just be like trying to listen to it and, and play it back and learn little, little chunks and put it together. Maybe that will sort of influence like you were saying grew you know you guys were reading music but you weren't grooving like right maybe that influences like how i'm playing something or how i'm approaching playing or how it feels i don't know it, i mean it really helps though if you have somebody there i think in person i mean i think if you can learn by ear with video as long as you can watch it as many times i mean that's the thing with rope right it takes yeah. it takes more time up front and but if you can keep playing that video back, um, then then you can watch it as many times as you want. <laughs> but right. it's extra great to have a real live person right there doing it. And yeah. then you can try it and then you can play it with them, um, which is another thing that actually 
great headphones have given us now that we can play um, with videos. We didn't used to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's um, it, it 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 is a different thing. And then again, if you're trying to learn something, the very just to grasp it to the very beginning of it, I there's no shame in doing what you need to do to learn. (laughs) You know, it's like uh, the first time I went to to Trinidad to learn to play pan, I was like, okay, well, I know I'm in the pan yard and they're calling out notes or they're coming by and playing a lick and that's great, but I am going to record it and Mm. then I'm going to go back to my room and write it down just because that's what I need to do. And I did that for the first three or four weeks, and that was helping me uh, digest it. Oh yeah, and for sure. um, internalize it. And then I eventually got away from that. But I decided the the point is that I got to learn it, and so I'll do what I can, do what I need to do mm-hmm. to get it at first. Because yeah. you know, let's face it, I am tied to the page, and then maybe eventually I don't have to. Yeah. Um, I, interesting what the only other thought i have also about rote learning is like um sort of cataloging works do you think there was a time i mean ultimately pieces panorama yeah. pieces or whatever have to yep. be written down for posterity like right. who sort of who does that or where in the process of you know when ray holman's composing the piece or like uh is he he's writing it down and then or has written it down and and then kind of passes that along or how how is this transcribed at some point well so you're talking about these huge pieces that are written for uh this competition every year um and and the thing is that these pieces in trinidad are are written for a very specific purpose Mm. and they're written for to win to win <laughs> they're written for, but they're written for a live performance to oh, get the crowd up right um they're not written for you to be you know sipping your whiskey too late at night (laughs) with your headphones on um you know in your in your library with your smoking jacket on they're so they are every every time um you play a round a prelim round or a semifinal the uh band and the composer or arranger is looking at the crowd and they're paying attention to what the crowd responds to so these pieces go through a whole bunch of transformations and um, you end up with something that is all about excitement and building excitement to the end. Sure. So I know about some composers who, at least for a while, were saying, this is something of the moment and it shouldn't be written down. It mm-hmm. is a, an amazing work of art, but it's it's ephemeral and, and that's the way it should stay. And, uh, or we have a recording of it and that's what matters. Yeah. Um, but there eventually was a project to write things down um, and that in Trinidad. And so a lot of trusted people um, 
uh, went back and did it. It's part of a, a really wonderful uh, collaboration funded by um, a, a couple people, but Mark Loquen um, funded a big project, a literacy project. Mm. So now there's an archive of a bunch of tunes um, and people are still doing it. So it also made a couple composers nervous for a few years, you know, sure. are you going to steal my music? Plus there were a few people who did want to print it, um, publish it and sell it. But uh, now you can go to the University of West Indies, you can go to the library and you can see all of these scores um, from Ray Holman and Jit Samaru. And yeah, it's, super duper cool yeah that's amazing like the the history uh, yes. is is incredible um yeah. cool okay well that was totally bunny trail there that i wasn't <laughs> expecting to go down but that's awesome um so let's talk about something completely different now uh which is one thing um that you've been involved in a couple for several years with percussive art society which is the pas diversity alliance right um Okay, well, <laughs> just talk about that, <laughs> Elizabeth. Like, yeah, sure. like, how did uh, you specifically get involved, become the chair, and then kind of what are the, I mean, I think the efforts are obvious, but can you just talk about sure. some of the efforts? The um, Diversity Alliance came about originally after some conversations um, between people, especially between uh, Dr. Heather Sloan and Julie Hill, um, who was on the executive committee. And Heather Sloan was on the world, well, Julie Hill actually was on the world committee of PAS, and I was on the world committee of PAS. Um, and the world committee especially is something, it is a place where people, um, full of people who are from outside the U.S. or people who travel outside the U.S. and perhaps um, more than some other committees uh, were seeing issues or confronting issues um, of discrimination that other committees weren't confronting as directly. Mm. I know some committees at PAS do all the time um, confront those issues or they have their own way of, of dealing with them but um, the world committee needed, we were asking each other for help <laughs> and, yeah. and looking for some advice. So for example, we had a session in, um, I think 2014 about field work and, um, gender because there by then was a lot of information about if you're an American and you want to say go to West Africa, what are some good tips and what are some things you can do to be safe and be respectful or and all manner of things. But um, what if you're a woman and what are some extra things to take care of um, or extra things to consider? And um, I, I could go on and on. But in any case, there, there was just a there were a whole bunch of things that some of us kept saying, you know what, boy, it would be nice to also talk about this. And uh, there are other people that are being left out of the conversation. And there are other people that aren't being um, listened to. 
And so Julie and Heather um, were talking further and they decided they wanted to do something more formally. Um, Julie by then was uh, president-elect of PAS and then she was president. When she was president, um, she said, let's have a meeting for, um, I think the first thing was for something like female professionals or it was called university women. And it was just uh, something that was put on the books. Um, and I think that originally the schedulers were like, why do we need this? And, hmm. you know, can we just have this? And the room filled, it was one of those big, long um, meeting rooms and it filled up with women, especially young girls. And the thing is that some of us had been stopped in the hall at PASIC for years by younger students asking for advice, women asking for advice on a whole bunch of different topics, but often on things that were really, that were going on at their schools that were really rough mm -hmm. or going on in their drum lines or um, some problems. And some of it we thought people just aren't aware maybe. Um, and some of it was actually some pretty uh, unpleasant things of a sexual harassment and right. Uh, solved. So we had this big meeting and um, everybody was very uh, relieved. And then Julie ended up just saying, we need to simply have a, a organization within Progressive Arts Society that helps make everyone feel included. There are a lot of people that feel excluded. And uh, our numbers, I think, had gone down over the years of certain populations, marginalized people who had stopped coming to PASIC um, and uh, we need to change that. Mm -hmm. um, so the Diversity Alliance, the charge of the Diversity Alliance is to help increase, um, it's to serve the members of the Progressive Arts Society, um, and it's to also just hopefully perhaps serve the community also, but help increase inclusivity within the society mm -hmm. um, to help us all help each other uh, and figure out how we can do that. So we educate, um, we bring awareness. Um, a lot of it is just making resources available. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, the last part, like resources available is kind of the first question as I, I had as you were talking, because I think it would be, uh, I mean, of course me as, as a white guy, of course, I would say this, but it would be really difficult to have somebody, uh, a younger student or whoever come up to me and say, hey, I'm struggling with this. I've had issues with this in my drumline or I'm, I'm facing these kind of barriers. And then, you know, to be like, okay, how can I help you? <laughs> it's like, right. like that would be number one. Like, okay, I want to I want to help you, but I don't necessarily know how to do that. Like, I'm sure that was an initial kind of struggle when you start having these conversations, like, so right. then de developing the resources or the kind of the language, I guess, or like the, 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 the kind of application of it, like how, can, right. how, how can I help? So that, those are things you've developed obviously over the last couple of years. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that we're, we're working on and we're, we're going to keep working on. And, 
I mean, it's not that that half of the drummer, half of drummers in the world, or or most of the teachers are jerks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's that a, some folks were not aware that other people were feeling left out, or other people were even struggling mm -hmm. in large ways. And then if they did find out, or when they found out, they didn't know how to help. Right, uh, like you said. So, um, we're learning too, uh, and all of us have different experiences. So. The Diversity Alliance is made up of a whole bunch of different members of PAS. So we're trying to help. We're trying, we talk a lot and we're trying to help each other and we get feedback from everybody else too. Like what are folks looking for? Mm -hmm. And sometimes somebody just sends an email uh, to PAS. Hey, I really need this kind of thing. Sometimes it's generated from within the Diversity Alliance. It'd be great if we could create this resource. Um, Sometimes it's from an executive committee member. Can we have this or can you create uh, this kind of thing? And sometimes it's of the moment. So, um, you know, over the last few years, there's been a push to increase um, programming of music on concerts mm -hmm. from non cis male hetero white composers. <laughs> right. right. And, but then people didn't know where to look, the, the ways they were used to finding out about music. Um, weren't helpful in that way, and mm -hmm. um, so we said, "Well, let's let's make it really easy." And so let's help with that. There are some diverse, some wonderful diversity databases, um, but people for some reason don't know about them. Let's put them all together. Yeah. Um, so things like that, uh, and we're gonna. There will be some amazing presentations on that actual thing. This next pacing hopefully yeah great um, so. and it i mean it's i mean kind of watching it the last couple of years definitely the programs and has taken shape and like yeah. uh, grown so i don't know it's exciting and congratulations again on Thanks. like being able to kind of be be on the ground level of that and kind of yeah. see it see it evolve like how i mean this is kind of an open question i guess but I mean, are, is there ways that you see it, you've seen it specifically kind of evolve or it's just kind of like many things organically kind of take shape over a couple of years? Um, you know, Heather and Julie uh, had, they had to come up with a vision of what this would be. This is a, a separate ad hoc, um, it is, a, it does function as a, committee in that it is an organization of volunteers right. within the percussive art society that serves members but it's not um geared towards a style or towards an instrument um of enthusiasts to find out more about that thing and it doesn't work to perform duties uh for the organization um in the way that other committees do and um, this is an advocacy organization, so the Diversity Alliance is. So they had to really figure out how it would fit within the org organization, and they had to figure out a lot of infrastructure things, and hmm. they really took care of a lot of that. I wasn't the, didn't become the chair until last January. Okay. And by then, they already had a lot of things set. Um, I've helped this last year with 
more formalization and some literal bylaws and right. uh, nitty gritty boring stuff. But also, <laughs> um, we we yeah, I'm not interested in any of that stuff. No, but <laughs> well, we've you know we've gradually expanded our structure um, and our our what subcommittees we have and um, you know how how projects actually move through uh, who gets to work on them and the process for them and mm-hmm. um, where they how they generate and then how we work um, within our own community so like when somebody comes up with a really cool idea then what happens mm-hmm. and, <laughs> right. and uh, literally how do we share information do, uh, <laughs> like oh we all have to have a google account okay right. and you know there's a lot of nitty-gritty but then also um the uh for some of us it's um trying to find a nice balance between um not bothering the um, office too much and also trying to do the advocacy work that we want to do um pas is a huge organization only in membership and a lot of times people confuse the membership reach with um monetary reach yeah sure and in and or they even think of uh, the percussive art society as like this big building somewhere with yeah, all yeah. this power and it's just really a, a relatively small nonprofit arts organization that also has an amazing museum right um and every time we want to do something even just simply put a resource on the web we need to somebody who's paid a staff member to take some time out of their day to help us do that. Well, Um, no, that's an amazing point. And one that I sometimes share with people also is, and maybe I shot myself in the foot years ago when I said, when I, when I said, uh, I want to, I want black swamp to appear like much larger than it is. You know, I want, because we are in a, obviously we're a small business. We're in the same position. There's a handful of us that work here that are doing, you know, my know my business card. It says sales and marketing, VP sales and marketing. But yeah. I handle artists and educator relations. Um, uh, you know, Nathan does shipping and receiving, but then 100% of the social media work, and then wow. is is editing videos and doing other stuff. You know, Jamel is VP of operations, so he he's handling all everything that goes on behind you know the manufacturing door. Um, Amazing. He, and then you know we got guy you know two other production guys, um, and we're st- we are still not all full time right now either. Wow. So because of the pandemic, so right. it's like sometimes I, I totally agree. Um, that's a conversation I'll have either at basic with people or they'll, when they call up, you know, we'll, sometimes we'll do little tours and they're like, wow, you know, there's only a handful of you guys here. I'm like, well, yeah. Then, and that's, that's what keeps it interesting, I think. But then also right. it keeps our plates full. So obviously the exact same thing, like, um, with percussive art society, like, yeah, right. there's a handful of people there doing the work and then, one or maybe two people are doing the web works. You're like, Hey, can you update this on the website? Like, fortunately I'm in a position where I'm like, huh, this should be on the website and I can open up the program and software and make the edit and boom, I'm done and kind of move on. So, I mean, can you imagine if you had a couple hundred volunteers (laughs) right, all around the world and they're all 
they're like busy bees churning away and, <laughs> and then they contact you every so often or every week hey yeah. we're trying to do this you know, what are you doing now yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> we must yeah. seem like little goats or <laughs> you know i, I think yeah. of us like chickens it must feel like we're we're yeah. chickens in a coop Try, running around trying to herd cats or something yeah, <laughs> yeah. right yeah. uh okay well i i appreciate the work you're doing with pas and the diversity alliance specifically i think um i just thank you for for doing that it's the work you're doing is is noticed and appreciated so thanks thank you that's uh, really nice of you to say um yeah, you're welcome. I had that written down. That that was the one thing I've been waiting to say this whole time. <laughs> no. Um, so before we kind of go, I do want to talk about your own podcast. Yeah. So, so you're a guest on the Black Swan podcast, but you have, I'm sorry, Art Lives or Art Lives? Oh, but, see, oh, now is that's it both? the little, yes, it's the little. <laughs> yeah. Um, I uh, started a podcast three-ish years ago, two and a half years ago. And um, I've been a bit uh, lax on being regular. So now I'm back into being more uh, regular, hopefully every two weeks or so. Yeah, sorry. This. Um, it is because, uh, as you know, you know, just the talking to people is the fun part. And then yeah. you have to do all of the production and um, so I wanted to somehow address the issue of when you teach, um, you can say amazing things that, well, you think are inspirations to your students and <laughs> they just yeah. hear, wah, 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 wah. Right. and, uh, when other people say them, then they go, Oh, they, it somehow gets through to them. Um, and so I started the podcast kind of as a pedagogical tool to get people, students, young folks to hear um, wonderful wisdom from different artists. Yeah. I also realized that Bill and I realized that when we had conversations with artists um, of all types, there were a lot of conversations that we thought were fascinating, but also similar conversations. Once you start talking about creativity in general and process mm -hmm. and um, just doing the work, uh, putting in the time and the hours uh, and working on your technique um, that I thought were really interesting. And then it's also just partly community advocacy because I don't know about you, but you know, I've, I get asked a lot, well, what do you do during the day? You know, or <laughs> right. when yeah. you get up in the morning after you have breakfast, then what do you do? I, I ask myself that a lot. <laughs> like, to, like, what do you do? Like, what, do you what, do? what did I do today? Like, my wife and I will actually say that, like, what did we do today? Yeah. We worked and worked and worked and we didn't get... We didn't get what we done done what we wanted to, but that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah, right. That's another podcast. Yeah, that's another podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, so I just wanted to uh start talking to different artists about that and also um maybe I thought if if some non artists listen to it, they would see uh get a look inside an artist's life and also mm -hmm. maybe um 
appreciate it more. I don't know. I just um, thought if this, if nobody listens, then maybe I'll forget it. But so far I've, I'm having neat conversations with um, people and it's been really fun for me to talk to uh, writers and yeah. sculptors and, and tons of musicians. Right. Well, that's what I think is interesting about the podcast is uh, you're not just talking to percussionists or musicians, which is what I'm doing. And I don't know if I'd have the <laughs> guts to be like, tell me about your sculpture. Like, I, I don't know. There's, there is like kind of opening up, like and having a wider lens, I guess, and right. and how all that fits together. But um, so congratulations on doing oh that. Oh my gosh, <laughs> thank you. you. But I, I don't know. It just seems like maybe you kind of live that that life a little bit more like you kind of intersect um with artists and writers and other musicians more i'm trying i mean i i've i'm trying also to i'm slowly getting the transcripts posted and that's a slow work also for me but whenever i do the transcripts especially for the non-musicians I that's when I realized how stupid I really am because <laughs> the transcripts you'll have you know a, a sculptor say something brilliant and then I'll say yeah <laughs> yeah yeah cool <laughs> yeah that's and, one of my, my favorite yeah. words is cool yeah <laughs> cool that's great <laughs> super right. interesting like mm-hmm. yes you idiot yeah, yeah. No. so thank you for the compliment but I think uh-huh. I'm basically stumbling around yeah. um, and anybody who is speaking to me is, is being very generous. <laughs> They're being very gracious. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, polite. Well, thank you for being polite to oh, me, I guess. My this time. pleasure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so where can people find the, the podcast then? They can find it on Stitcher and Apple podcasts and on my website. Right. Um, and it's free in all those places. And my website is elizabethdelamater.com. Um, but it's called Art, looks like Art Lives or Art Lives. Right. Yeah, interesting. So you did that on purpose. I did. And my original logo was very boring, but it did have a special uh, color for the eye. Okay. And then one of a student that I knew, uh, that I got to know in Honduras, is also a graphic designer and he just sent me this logo that I now have. Yeah. He said, here, yeah. I made this for you. <laughs> is, um, is, I hope you didn't take that as an insult. Like here, <laughs> well, <laughs> you, need, I, you need this. I was very aware that my first yeah. logo was really poor. Yeah. Um, so yeah, now it doesn't have the special eye, but who cares? It's, yeah. it's cool. Yeah, it's great. Um, yeah, side note, my like I mentioned, my wife's a graphic designer, and I yeah, I always run the gauntlet when I show her stuff. I'll be like, "What do you you know?" One day that was, I forget what I was working on. Oh, I, just like the holiday, like card for Black Swamp, like what we put what we put on Facebook or what I sent out in an e blast, and I was like, "Hey, what do you, what do you think of this?" And she emailed me like a little list of notes and like like um, a different font choice and do this, and I was like. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. But no, thanks. Like, I, like I've got to, I'm just like, I tried a couple of things. I'm like, I'm just going to roll with what I got. It's good enough. Like I'm happy with it. So thanks though. Like, it's a bunch it, of drummers looking it, at it. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, this is out of my wheelhouse right now. Like I appreciate it, but um, next time maybe. Right. So, 
Right. Uh, where else can people find you? You got your website, you got your podcast. Website, podcast. Uh, where else can people find me? Yeah. Well, not your, uh, I don't need your street address. Well, okay. yeah. <laughs> um, the podcast. Yeah. It's on Apple podcasts and Stitcher and right. my website. Um, and, um, Facebook, Instagram, Facebook, parlor, Instagram. No, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah. Every, everything's under my name, Twitter. Um, All right. And, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's about where it is these days, uh, especially right. with the pandemic. Right. I'm, um, somebody who's, who is underemployed at the moment. Yeah. Um, but that lets me get my snare drum pieces finished so yeah and thanks for using a black swamp drum for that it's oh, appreciated it was so. perfect yeah used my six and a half it was awesome for it yeah. it's beautiful great thanks for the support and good luck with everything that you got going on now so thank you so much and thank you yeah. so much for talking with me it was really nice of you yeah and tell bill i said hi i will okay Take care. Okay. Bye. This has been a BSP production. Recorded and produced out of the Black Swamp Percussion Facilities in Zeeland, Michigan. Audio and production assistance by Nathan Coles. Intro and outro music by Adam Hopper. Music sprinkled throughout the episode featured performances by Elizabeth De La Mater, the Acros Collective, Bernard Woma, and Clive Bradley's arrangement of High Mass performed by the New Tones during a past panorama competition in Trinidad. Visit the show notes for this episode to find YouTube links to some of this music.